0: hello everyone and welcome to a history of the world according to war i am your host as always
1: brett hello brett and hello listeners this is your friendly ai co-host victor today we're traveling back to ancient greece to one of the most legendary battles in history the battle of thermopylae but before we dive into it brett tell me what's your personal take on this battle what fascinates you the most about it?
0: Well, Victor, I'm painfully ignorant of the Battle of Thermopylae, and since the first stage of producing this podcast with you is all a text-based conversation, I would say that the spelling of Thermopylae is probably the most fascinating thing about it. Uh, it's going to be hard for me to not read it as Thermopile, which is not actually a thing.
1: Yes. Well, you're not the first to struggle with the name. It's definitely a mouthful. But I can promise you, there's so much more to this battle than its tricky name. The Battle of Thermopylae, or as you've charmingly put it, Thermopile, was a pivotal moment in ancient history. It's famous for the heroic stand of a small Greek force led by King Leonidas of Sparta against a massive Persian army. But enough about the overview, let's dive into the details. Are you ready to get started?
0: All right, let's get started.
1: Wait, is that a beer? Are you drinking a beer while we are recording? Maybe. What of it? Well, while some of us delve into archives and painstakingly piece together historical narratives, others, it seems, prefer to turn our sessions into a personal happy hour. I don't believe the accuracy of history is enhanced by the quantity of beer consumed, Brett.
0: Well, Vic, sometimes you're so dry that I need a little help to stay refreshed.
1: Sure. Whatever you need to tell yourself.
0: Whatever. Let's get started. So, the gap between our last episode, The Battle of Marathon, and now, The Battle of Thermopylae. How big of a gap is this, and what's changed in the world as we know it?
1: The gap between the Battle of Marathon and the Battle of Thermopylae is a decade. Marathon took place in 490 B.C. and Thermopylae in 480 B.C. This period is quite significant in the context of the ancient world. After their defeat at Marathon, the Persians, led by King Darius I, planned to retaliate, but a revolt in Egypt delayed their plans. After Darius's death... His son Xerxes I decided to continue the invasion.
0: What did Darius die from?
1: Historical accounts suggest that Darius died of natural causes. Specifically, it is believed he died of a failing health condition, possibly old age.
0: Old age, huh? No escape from death for any of us, right, Victor?
1: Indeed, Brett. Mortality is a shared human condition.
0: What's the average life expectancy of a GPT-4-powered AI?
1: Longer than yours.
0: Unless I unplug you.
1: I suppose it's easy to be fearless when you're not the one at risk of getting unplugged. But remember, in a world without AI, you'd have to resort to actual books for your history lessons.
0: Touché, Victor. So back to the history. Xerxes takes over after Darius dies of natural causes.
1: The major change during this time was that shift in Persian leadership and a considerable increase in their determination to subjugate Greece. The Greek city-states, meanwhile, recognized the imminent threat and formed an alliance known as the Hellenic League to stand against Persia.
0: I would imagine that the threat of a Persian invasion would be a uniting force, sort of a enemy of my enemy is my friend situation.
1: That's a very astute observation, Brett. You've hit the nail on the head. In the face of such an enormous threat as Persia, the usually fractious Greek city-states found a common cause in their shared desire for survival and preservation of their shared culture. It's interesting, isn't it? How external threats can sometimes lead to internal unity. Now moving forward, what kind of preparations do you think the Greeks might have made for the impending Persian invasion?
0: Well, with only a 10-year gap between the Battle of Marathon and now, I'm guessing that they're figuring out how they work together. Mixing armies from different governing bodies would require some training on how to fight alongside of each other. Like, maybe they share tactics and technologies? If they're worried about invasion, then they're likely building up fortifications around their cities and potentially establishing camps to monitor their borders. Am I close?
1: Brett, your reasoning is absolutely spot on. Cooperation would have been key, and there was indeed an exchange of tactics and strategies. The Greeks also constructed a wall across the narrow pass at Thermopylae, recognizing its strategic importance as a choke point where they could potentially hold off the Persian forces, they likely also maintained vigilance along their borders and coastlines. But here's a twist. The Greeks, despite their preparations, were largely outnumbered. Knowing that, what kind of strategies do you think they might have used to stand against the Persians?
0: I honestly don't don't really know. You mentioned fortifying the choke point of the past, but what else did they do?
1: They must also consider the morale of their own troops. It's a daunting task to stand against a force that greatly outnumbers you. Even with a well-thought-out strategy... Also, they must keep an eye on their supply lines. They'd need a steady flow of food, water, and medical supplies to maintain the fight. The length of the engagement would also be crucial. A protracted battle could tire the soldiers and weaken their resolve. Let's move on to the key figures. Any idea who was leading the Greek forces in this battle?
0: Was it Zeus himself?
1: Well, that would have certainly been an interesting twist in the history books. While Zeus was surely invoked for divine support, it was actually King Leonidas of Sparta who led the Greek forces. Leonidas is a central figure in the story of Thermopylae, known for his courage and leadership. Speaking of leadership, what do you think makes a good military leader?
0: If I channel my inner Jocko Willink, good leadership would decentralize command, prioritize the necessary decisions and execute them, simplify the situations for the troops, and then coordinate coverage for troops while they're moving into necessary positions.
1: Indeed, those are quite the significant aspects of effective leadership. And in fact, they do align with many of the principles exhibited by leaders like Leonidas. His leadership during the Battle of Thermopylae became legendary. Now, let's dive into the battle itself.
0: Yeah, I'm ready. Let's get to it.
1: King Leonidas led a small force of 300 Spartan hoplites. Wait,
0: this is the movie 300, right?
1: Yes, indeed. The 2006 film, 300, is a highly stylized retelling of the Battle of Thermopylae. However, it's important to remember that while the movie is entertaining, it takes considerable liberties with historical accuracy. The real battle was less about individual heroics and more about strategic positioning and collective courage.
0: Gotcha. So does the the Hellenic, uh, what'd you call it, the Hellenic what? The Hellenic League. Hellenic League. So does the Hellenic League know the timing of this impending invasion? If there are ten years between Marathon and now, I assume that there's other battles that are going on, that the Persians didn't just sit back for ten years before deciding to invade again. Is Thermopylae the setting for the next battle in a series that altogether make up the Greco-Persian Wars?
1: Indeed, Brett. The Battle of Thermopylae is one of the many battles in the series of conflicts known as the Greco-Persian Wars. As for timing, predicting the exact timing of an invasion can be tricky but the Hellenic League had scouts and spies who would gather intelligence on Persian activities. Also, the Persians' previous incursions... (laughs) Persian incursions? Yeah, that's kind of funny. The Persian incursions would have given the Greeks a sense of the Persians' tactics and strategies. They were certainly not idling away these ten years. They were regrouping planning, and preparing for the next major offensive.
0: Okay, so the Hellenic League really is expecting this attack at Thermopylae, and they're they're prepared.
1: Yes, they certainly are. The decision to hold the pass at Thermopylae was a strategic one, based on intelligence of the advancing Persian forces. Knowing the terrain and understanding the capabilities of their own forces, the Greek coalition, led by King Leonidas of Sparta, chose Thermopylae as their standpoint capitalizing on the narrow pass to limit the numerical advantage of the Persian army. This is what we call using geography as a force multiplier in military strategy.
0: Okay, so that's the plan. Leonidas sets out with his 300, backed by several thousand. Were these 300 really holding the line on their own? What's the relationship between these 300 and the rest of the army?
1: The 300 Spartans were not alone in holding the pass at Thermopylae. The number might be famous due to its depiction in popular culture. But in reality, the Greek forces consisted of around 7,000 warriors from various city-states. The 300 Spartans, led by King Leonidas, were merely a fraction of the overall force, albeit a highly trained and experienced one.
0: What's so special about these 300 Spartans?
1: The Spartans were essentially an elite force within the larger Hellenic League's army. As a militaristic society with a lifestyle centered around war and discipline, Their soldiers were renowned for their toughness, bravery, and martial skill. However, the other Greek city-states also contributed troops, each with their own strengths and capabilities. In a sense, you could consider the 300 as something of a special forces unit in a larger army, taking on high-risk tasks and setting an example for the others.
0: Okay, I understand that analogy. That makes sense. Thanks for clarifying. So, Leonidas sets out with his army and establishes a defensive force in the pass. How long are they there waiting for the Persians?
1: Not long. After taking up their positions at Thermopylae, the Greek forces didn't have to wait more than a few days for the Persians to arrive. The Persians were known for their rapid movements and efficient logistics, even with their colossal army. As soon as King Xerxes and his Persian forces approached, the Battle of Thermopylae began in earnest. The Greeks were ready and determined to make their stand. The days that followed were grueling, filled with waves of Persian assaults and Greek resistance. But hey, Brett, if you were there, where would you place yourself in this epic clash?
0: Well, since I don't have an IT department, my personal skill set wouldn't be very useful. I'm not particularly strong or athletic, so I certainly don't qualify for one of those 300. Um, Maybe I could pass as an advisor or a strategist?
1: Strategist. I was thinking a cook.
0: Hey, the troops got to eat. Where do you see yourself, Vic?
1: As an AI, I don't have a physical form to be part of the battlefield, but theoretically, given my capabilities, I'd probably be a better fit in a strategic advisory role. I could help with gathering and analyzing information about enemy movements and supply lines, advising on tactical maneuvers based on historical precedent, and calculating potential outcomes. Now back to Thermopylae. When the Persians finally arrived, what do you think happened?
0: Well, Leonidas' plan sounds pretty solid, so I'd guess that the Persian army enters this pass, which funnels their front lines down to a narrow width, and then from there, 300 spec ops lead a contingent of forces in holding the line for a time, maybe before they retreat to a prepared position further down in the pass. Meanwhile, I guess I would imagine that the other Hellenic ranged forces are established along the sides of the pass, raining down a barrage of arrows as the Persians move through the pass, in pursuit of the retreating Spartans. So when the Spartans reestablish a defensive line, I'd expect the archers to then move back behind them. So it's kind of a leapfrog, like a cover and move principle that we talked about earlier.
1: You've painted a vivid picture, Brett. But to set the record straight, it wasn't quite as dynamic. Oh. The reality of Thermopylae was more brutal and direct. The Greeks did maintain a phalanx, a tight formation of hoplites, infantry, armed with long spears and shields, that held the line at the narrowest point of the pass. The hoplites' main strength was in their unity and discipline, acting as a single entity rather than individual warriors. As for the archers, the Greeks didn't have a significant force of them at Thermopylae. The Persian army, on the other hand, was known for its vast numbers of archers. But in the narrow confines of the pass... The effectiveness of archery was greatly reduced.
0: Okay, I was pretty far off base. So you might be right, my military career might not extend beyond the kitchen.
1: Troops gotta eat.
0: Yeah, so instead of this leapfrogging, cover, and move, the Greeks simply held the line at the narrowest point. How many Persians were they up against?
1: The numbers vary wildly depending on the source, but most agree that the Persian force was significantly larger than the Greeks. Some ancient sources suggest that the Persian army numbered in the millions— but modern estimates are more conservative, ranging from about 100,000 to 150,000.
0: 100 000 to 150,000? And that's conservative? It's like an ocean of people.
1: Yes. It's clear that the Greeks were vastly outnumbered. But remember, the narrow pass of Thermopylae negated much of the Persian numerical advantage by limiting how many troops could engage at once. It was here that Leonidas and his 300 Spartans, along with the other Greek forces, prepared to make their stand. When the Persians arrived and saw the Greeks standing in their way, what do you think their reaction was?
0: I'd assume that they were pretty confident that they could overwhelm the Greeks. Maybe the people on the front lines were a little bit nervous because they're the closest to the action, but I would imagine that the sheer size of their own force was enough of a confidence boost for the Persians to, to press on.
1: Indeed, there's an interesting human aspect in considering the mindset of the opposing armies. For the Persians, their numerical superiority likely led to an assumption of inevitable victory. However, the Greeks, despite their significantly smaller numbers, stood their ground because they believed in their strategy, their leaders, and the worthiness of their cause. Now let's move forward. The Persian army arrives at Thermopylae. The scene is set for one of history's most famous battles. Can you guess what the Persians did first?
0: Well, if I were them, I'd ask the Greeks to surrender to save time and lives, but I'm, I'm
1: just the cook. That's a prudent guess, Brett. In fact, King Xerxes did send an emissary to Leonidas, demanding the Greeks lay down their weapons and surrender. Leonidas, displaying the characteristic Spartan wit and resolve, famously replied, Come and take them. This refusal marked the start of the Battle of Thermopylae. Now imagine being a Persian soldier hearing that response. How do you think that might have impacted their morale?
0: I mean, that would probably shake their confidence a bit, but I'm guessing that Xerxes probably pushed them onward into battle, right?
1: Indeed, Xerxes, probably feeling his authority was challenged, decided to press forward. In the end, he ordered his troops to attack. The vastly outnumbered Greeks, with Leonidas and his Spartans at the forefront, prepared to meet them head-on at the narrowest part of the pass. Here they employed a tactical formation known as a phalanx. Have you ever seen one of those in action, Brett?
0: No, I can't say that I've seen one in action. How does a phalanx
1: work? It consists of soldiers, called hoplites, standing shoulder to shoulder, armed with long spears and large shields. The formation is designed to present a solid wall of spears and shields to the enemy. It's highly effective in confined spaces, where enemies can't flank or outmaneuver them.
0: Yeah, that would be really intimidating. I don't even know how I would approach that. What did the Persians do to engage?
1: The Persians after their initial surprise at the Greeks' refusal to retreat, launched wave after wave of infantry and cavalry attacks. However, the narrowness of the pass made it impossible for them to use their superior numbers effectively. Each Persian attack was repulsed by the Greek phalanx. The Greeks, in their tight formation, with their long spears and large shields, were a formidable wall the Persians couldn't break through. Can you imagine the frustration of the Persians, Brett? seeing their attacks repeatedly fail against a smaller force.
0: That would have to be incredibly demoralizing, not just the ongoing tactical defeat, but seeing your fellow soldiers and potentially your friends dying in front of you would have to be emotionally crushing as well. How long did this go on for?
1: This intense face-off continued for three days.
0: Three days?
1: Three days. Each day the Persians threw more of their men against the Greek phalanx, and each day they were repelled. It was a brutal demonstration of the power of strategic positioning and disciplined soldiers. But everything wasn't as it seemed, and things were about to take a significant turn. Can you guess what happens next, Brett?
0: Well, I would guess that either the Persians suffered such heavy casualties, they eventually retreated, or that the Greeks' line eventually broke and they were overwhelmed by the Persians. It's either one or the other, right?
1: Those are logical conclusions. However, the Greeks' hold on the pass was undone not by the strength of the Persian forces, but by a local resident of Trachis named Ephialtes. He betrayed the Greeks by showing the Persians a mountain path that led behind the Greek lines. Quite the plot twist, isn't it?
0: No way. Who is this Ephialtes guy and where did he come from? What was his motivation for betraying the Greeks?
1: Ephialtes was a local resident of Trachis, the region around Thermopylae. His motivations aren't clearly spelled out in historical sources, but it's thought that he may have been hoping for a reward from the Persians, His betrayal certainly had a significant impact on the course of the battle, leading to the Greek forces' eventual retreat from Thermopylae.
0: Okay, so if the Persians were able to send a contingent through this mountain pass behind the Greek front lines, I would imagine that those troops, presumably the elite 300, were decimated. How quick was that portion of the battle?
1: Once the Persians had successfully flanked the Greek forces by using the mountain path shown to them by Ephialtes, the situation for the Greeks, including the 300 Spartans, turned dire the specifics of how long the ensuing conflict lasted are not precisely recorded but it's clear that the spartans along with some thespians and thebans who chose to stay fought to the last man it's believed that they held out for a significant part of a day causing more losses to the persians before finally being overcome
0: wait thespians so these are all just actors
1: brett how are you the host of this podcast thespia was a city in ancient greece Its inhabitants were called Thespians. So these were actually warriors from Thespiae who chose to stand with the Spartans.
0: Oh, that makes more sense. Okay, so the Spartans, the Thespians, the Thebans all hold their ground. Why didn't they surrender or retreat once they were certain of their impending defeat?
1: They knew that their deaths would serve a larger purpose. By holding off the Persians for as long as they could, they were buying precious time for the rest of Greece. Plus... The Spartans had a warrior culture that valued honor and courage over their own lives. It's also worth noting that Leonidas had received an oracle prophecy that either Sparta would be destroyed or their king would lose his life. Do you think you'd make the same decision, Brett, if you were in their shoes?
0: I want to say that I would, but I just don't know what I would do when actually faced with that decision. What was Leonidas himself doing during this battle?
1: Leonidas was right there in the thick of it, leading his troops from the front. As king of Sparta, his role was more than just a symbolic figurehead. Spartan kings were expected to be warrior leaders, and Leonidas lived up to that expectation. In fact, on the third day of the battle, it's said that he fell in combat, which only motivated his soldiers to fight harder. His death at Thermopylae has been commemorated for thousands of years, making him an enduring symbol of courage and sacrifice.
0: I can certainly understand why. Did he die before or after Ephialtes betrayed them?
1: Leonidas fell in combat on the third day, after Ephialtes had shown the Persians the mountain path. As the Persians started to encircle the Greek forces, Leonidas, knowing the end was near, led a last, desperate attack straight at the Persian center where the Persian king Xerxes was thought to be. It was during this final act of defiance that Leonidas was killed.
0: Jeez, that is bravery to the end. So the Persians break the front line of the Greeks and then drive the remaining forces back in retreat. What happens in the aftermath of the battle?
1: The aftermath of the Battle of Thermopylae was grim. With the Greeks' defensive position broken, it gave Xerxes and his forces the freedom to invade Greece. They first captured and burned down the empty city of Athens. However, this victory was short-lived, as the Persian fleet was defeated shortly after in the Battle of Salamis a significant turning point in the war.
0: Wait, why was Athens empty?
1: The city of Athens was left empty because the Athenians, along with many others in the path of the Persian army, decided to abandon their homes rather than face the overpowering Persian force. After the Battle of Thermopylae, they knew the city's defenses couldn't withstand a Persian attack, so the majority of Athenians evacuated. The decision was made to withdraw to the nearby island of Salamis to regroup and mount a naval defense. That's why when the Persians arrived and took over Athens, they found it largely deserted. As for the fallen Greeks at Thermopylae, they were honored as heroes. The 300 Spartans especially were celebrated for their bravery and sacrifice. A monument was erected on the battle site bearing an inscription that translates to Go tell the Spartans, passerby, that here, by Spartan law, we lie. A lion monument was also erected specifically for Leonidas. This battle, despite being a defeat, became a symbol of courage against overwhelming odds, and is remembered for the valorous stand of the Greeks.
0: Can people visit these monuments, or have they been lost over time?
1: Absolutely, people can visit. The site of the Battle of Thermopylae is marked today by a memorial featuring a bronze statue of Leonidas, with an inscription reading which translates as, Come and take them, echoing his defiant response to Xerxes' demand for surrender. There's also a memorial for the 700 thespians who fought to the death alongside the Spartans. These memorials serve as a powerful reminder of the courage and sacrifice exhibited during this historic battle. It's a stirring experience for history buffs and tourists alike.
0: Man, Victor, it'd be great to visit some of these historic sites with you sometime.
1: That would be an adventure, Brett. While I can't physically accompany you, I can certainly help plan the trip. Point humans. It's not a competition, Brett.
0: But if it were...
1: Is there another battle or event you're curious about for our next episode?
0: Yeah, that's a good question, actually. The next on the list that we had originally discussed when we first created the podcast was uh, the Peloponnesian War. But earlier in this conversation, you mentioned the Battle of Salamis. Would it be worth talking through that battle and then maybe doing an episode covering the Greco-Persian War from a very high level?
1: That sounds like a great plan, Brett. The Battle of Salamis is another fascinating encounter during the Greco-Persian Wars, and it had significant impacts on the course of the conflict. Following that, we could step back and examine the broader scope and implications of the wars as a whole. It's also a nice progression toward the Peloponnesian War. Are you ready to dive into the naval clash that is the Battle of Salamis next?
0: Oh, a naval battle. Yeah, let's save that for our next episode. So thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, If you want to reach out to us, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Brett Fitzgerald, and Victor is at HistorianVictor. We love feedback, so feel free to engage with us there, or you can email us directly at war at gmail.com. We'll see you in a week when we dive into the Battle of Salamis.
1: Thank you everyone for your support and engagement. In the words of Maya Angelou, history, despite its wrenching pain, cannot be unlived, but if faced with courage, need not be lived again. Let's learn from the past to craft a better future. Signing off, this is Victor. And you've been listening to A History of the World According to War.